C.T. Studd, a missionary from an earlier generation, from the early 1900s, who went out from England to China, wrote a famous poem. And here's how it went. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. And then here come the lines. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he goes on and on in his poem. What was his point? His point is life is short. Life is short. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so C.T. Studd's point was, make it matter. Don't waste it. The title of the sermon today is Life is Short. Don't waste it. And our, our passage is Psalm 90, which Mark read. Before we get into the psalm, let me talk a little bit about some background. Psalm, the word psalm, comes from the Greek word psalmos, which means song of praise. And that Greek word psalmos is just a translation of the Hebrew word tachalim, which means praise. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that that book that you just opened and, and, and closed and, and, had, and is in front of you in the pew, that you sang from, the hymnal, the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, they had a hymnal too. And that's what the book of Psalms was. It was their hymn. The, the, the hymns of worship. Now, we don't have the, the notes of the music. We have the words of the Psalms. And, and the book of Psalms was written by a number of different authors. By, by uh, David, Solomon, Asaph, and by Moses. Psalm 90 is the only psalm in the book of Psalms written by Moses. And it's the oldest of all the psalms because it was written by Moses. And... He wrote other psalms, it's just they didn't make their way into the psalter. They didn't make their way into the the book of psalms. He wrote other songs of worship, Moses did, like in Exodus 15 or Deuteronomy 32, but this is the only one that he wrote that is in the book of psalms. Now, these songs, or psalms, these songs of worship, come in different types. They're psalms of thanksgiving, they're psalms, they're messianic psalms. They're psalms of lament, which is where the, the psalm writer is crying out to God in distress. He's troubled. In grief, he's crying out to God. That's a psalm of lament. And they're psalms of wisdom. This psalm, written by Moses, is a psalm, really a combination of lament and wisdom. So Moses is going to feed us spinach. I'm not a big fan of spinach, by the way. He's going to feed us spinach. He's going to open up our mouth and he's going to feed us spinach. He's going to give us bad news and bad news and bad news. And when he's done with that, he's going to give us bad news and bad news and bad news. And at the end, he's going to give us some nice dessert. But he's going to give us our spinach before our dessert, our spinach before our bluebell ice cream. And he's going to start with doom and gloom because of sin. And it's going to be... As we go through this, you're going to say, will you stop, Moses, already? Because it's dark. But the darkness 
in his message is because of the reality of sin. And then he's going to close with great, joyous news of gladness, which comes from submission to God. So this is a psalm of both lament and wisdom. Now when I say lament, he wrote this most likely at the end of the 40-year wandering. Remember the Exodus generation when they were in, uh, in Egypt and the, uh, they were slaves in Egypt under the most powerful man over the face of the planet at that time, a man by the name of Pharaoh. And God, and Pharaoh represented himself to be God, little g. But the living God said, no, 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 you don't get it, I'm God. And so Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, imposed all of these curses, all of these plagues on Pharaoh to finally bring Pharaoh to his knees to free the Israelites. But then what happens is the Israelites, even though they believe in Yahweh, they're saved, and we'll see a passage about that in Exodus in a few minutes, even though they're saved, this is a saved generation as a whole. Like We can't say that every single one of them were saved, but we, we can say that the vast majority were saved. Even though they're saved when they see all of these amazing works and miracles and plagues and power from God, because God brings Pharaoh to his knees, what happens after that is... These believers rebel against God and rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel. And there were ten times. In Numbers 14, God says, you rebelled against me ten times. So what's going to happen is, no mas, no more. Let me just talk about a few of those ten rebellions. And, and at the end of those rebellions, God says, no more. You cannot enter into the promised land. And in fact... I'm going to issue punishment on you, this believing generation, and that punishment is effectively a death sentence. Because he tells them, you're going to wander in the desert. You're going to go around literally in circles in the desert. Just a few days journey from the promised land. But you can't enter it because of your rebellion. And they, they rebel ten times. Let me just talk about a few of those instances of rebellion. Right When they're leaving Egypt, God's brought Pharaoh to his knees. Pharaoh said, just go, get out to the Israelites, just go. So they leave, and the Israelites give them their, excuse me, the Egyptians give them their gold and silver. That, that's how impressive God, God's works were for the Israelites. But then at the, as they stand at the banks of the Red Sea, and they see the, the Pharaoh's chariots coming, they turn to Moses and they said, you took us out here to kill us. And really what they're doing is they're saying to God. They're attacking God's character. Because Moses is the servant of God. And they're saying, God, you took us out here to kill us. So what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. They go through it on dry land. The, the sea closes and all the, the, the Egyptian army's killed. And you think, wow, these guys got it now. They're, they're, they're going to submit to God. They're going to honor God. They're going to trust God. But it doesn't work out that way. So then they're in the, in the desert and they start complaining to Moses, there's no food. You took us out here to kill us of starvation, didn't you, Moses? So they're really attacking God when they say that. So what does God do? He provides manna. And then there's another one. You took us out here to kill us of thirst. So what does God do? He provides water miraculously. And so there are all these instances of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and then there's the one where Moses is up on the mountain. 
talking with God. Getting the Ten Commandments, and so the people are down below the mountain. And instead of saying, wow, we have, we have a God who delivers us. They make this calf, this golden calf, and they worship that calf instead of the God who Moses is conversing with. And then they get engaged in this sexual immorality of this orgy while Moses is up on the mountain talking with God. God punishes them again. And then finally, the, the occasion of Nomas was he's brought them to the edge of the, of the promised land. They're there. They can see it. And, he, and, and God says, send out 12 spies. So 12 spies go. 12 spies come back. And 10 of them says, no way. God cannot, effectively what they're saying is, God cannot provide for us. God cannot do what he promised to do, which is to bring us to the promised land. He can't deliver. Which is to say, we can't trust God because they're, they're giants. They're giants. And two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, sure, God can deliver. And so that's the occasion where God says, no more. After this rebellion, after rebellion, after rebellion, God says, this generation, this Exodus generation, although they're believers, they will not enter the promised land. And so Moses sees all these deaths of this generation because they went in circles, literally in the wilderness, just a few days' journey from the promised land because that was the punishment from God. And so Moses, if you do the math, 1.2 million people over 38 years, it's about 85 funerals a day. About 31,000 funerals a year. So Moses sees all this and it hurts him. It hurts him. So he cries out in lament to God. And this psalm has this, this intense lament, this grief. And then there's wisdom that, that Moses brings in at the end of the psalm. Moses' point to the Israelites, really to the next generation, everybody 20 years old and older received the death sentence effectively from God, which was, you're going you're gonna to die in the wilderness. You can't enter the promised land. Everybody 19 years and younger was the next generation. So Moses is saying to the next generation, don't waste your lives because life is short. So that's the message that we're going to see from Moses today. Here's our outline. Number one, God is our eternal refuge. Number two, even though God's our refuge and He's eternal, He makes our lives fleeting, and that's because of sin. Number three, death and suffering come because of sin. Number four, fear God. That's a term we really don't hear much anymore because God, people take God flippantly, casually. But Moses says, fear of God produces a wise life, really a productive life. Number four, God's mercy turns punishment into joy. Excuse me, that's number five. And then the sixth item of our outline is that only God, God alone, can make our short lives, because they are short, productive. Moses is going to toggle back and forth. He's going he's to flip back and forth between lament and wisdom, and we'll see that as we go. Item number one, God is our eternal refuge. Psalm 90, verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. This term dwelling place, the, the, the connotation of this Hebrew word is a refuge. It's a place of protection, a place of safety. And Moses said the same thing back in Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-seven. 
when he said the eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. It's this idea of a hiding place. That's how Moses describes God. Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What's Moses saying here? He says, in the first verse, you are our refuge. You're our dwelling place. But now he takes comfort in the fact that our dwelling place, who's a person, by the way, it's God, is eternal. That gives Moses comfort that our dwelling place, that that our refuge is from everlasting to everlasting because if God were like us, finite, temporary, then Moses couldn't say that he's our dwelling place because that's not a very significant permanent dwelling place. Moses takes great comfort that God's eternal and this is part of the authority of God. If God were finite like us, here today, gone tomorrow, then he doesn't have authority and he should not be worshipped and he doesn't have power and he should not, we should not trust him. God is a joke if he's not eternal and that's why the unbelieving world views God as a joke because they don't view him as from everlasting to everlasting they don't view him as sovereign they don't view him as omniscient and they certainly don't view him as the judge with a capital J who takes sin very 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 seriously so Moses is comforted. Moses, Moses is comforted by the eternality of God. This is one of God's divine attributes. Why did Jesus say, when he's standing before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are bragging that they're sons of Abraham, why did Jesus say before Abraham was, I am? Right? He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says, I am. It describes the eternality of the God-man. Because God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one God. Moses is focusing on the eternality of God here in contrast to us. In contrast to our frail human lives, which are very, very short. Which takes us to the second point in the outline. God makes our lives fleeting. So now Moses is going to lament. He's going to cry out to God in grief. Verse 3. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. As punishment for sin, we physically die. I mean, God made Adam and Eve without death, right? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. But in Genesis 2, he said, In the day that don't eat from the tree, and in the day that you eat from the tree, you will surely die. So in Genesis 3, Adam eats, he dies immediately spiritually, and then ultimately he dies physically. And God says to Adam in Genesis 3, after he sinned, Genesis 3.19, from dust you came, to dust you will return. Because God made him out of dust, the dust of the ground. That's why your body, that's why my body and my bone, my bones and yours are too, they're made from vitamins and elements and minerals that we find in the ground. That's not an accident. I mean, I know the world thinks we come from monkeys, but we don't. There's no accident. 
Our bodies are made up of the same essence as that which is in the ground. Because from dust we came, to dust we will return. And this is not good news. This is not good news that, that, that we will die, that, that we will return to dust. Moses is not being depressing here. He's not being Mr. Negative. He's just being honest. The mortality rate, the death rate among human beings is 100%. It just is. Everyone in this room today will pass away. I'm not, I'm, look, I'm not trying to be depressing. I'm just being honest. It's just a question of when. We don't know if it's tonight or it's 50 years or 70 years from tonight. But it's coming. The only exception to that is the rapture generation. And so that's what Moses says here. He's referring, hearkening back to Genesis 3.19 that God takes us back to dust because of our sin. Now, Adam sinned and his sin is imputed to us. We're born sinners. Now some say, well, hey, 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 ooh, wait a second, God. I didn't sin. I wasn't there in the garden. I didn't eat from the tree. So God, why are you imputing to me, why are you transferring to me, Adam's sin? We've got to be real careful about that. We've got to be real careful before we get up on our high horse and, and try and judge God. We confirm that we would have done the same thing Adam did. And the way we confirm it is every single day we commit our own sins, our own personal sins, either in thought or in deed or in speech. So we should be very careful before we get on our high horse and judge God. See, see, we're, we're, we're troubled about that imputation, but we're totally cool with the other imputation of, of, of Christ's righteousness. We're good with that one, right? That one we like. Christ's life, eternal life, imputed to us. His righteousness imputed to us. We're good with that imputation. But He's God, and we're not. And so He imputes Adam's original sin to us, and then when we accept Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. The point here is, we return to dust because of sin. Verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passed by, or as a watch in the night. So as evidence of God's authority, of God's power, Moses goes back to the eternality of God. Because God is eternal, a thousand years for him is like a blip. It's like a day. I can barely remember what I did yesterday. But for God, everything's eternal. He is eternal. He's independent of time. He's not subject to time like we are. This is what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter 3.8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Forgive the analogy, but think of Bill Gates, the inventor of Microsoft, who has billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. For Bill Gates, there's not much difference between $25, dollars $25, $25,000, $250,000. Because he's got billions upon billions upon billions. Well, God is eternal. He's not limited by time. There's never been a time when he didn't exist. So there's not much difference between a thousand years with God and a day with God. Or a watch in the night. The watch in the night is a reference to the way the Israelites 
kept time in the evening. They, they divided the evening up into three watches of four hours each. And so Moses says, God, I'm blown away by your eternality because I recognize that your foreverness means there's not much difference for you between four hours in the evening and a thousand years or between a day and a thousand years. Verse 5. You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep in the morning. They are like grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. So Moses is just being brutally honest with us. He's saying, what does it say? Swept them away. Fall asleep. Asleep is a euphemism. It's a nice way of saying die. Just like Jesus was talking about Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. It's a nice way of saying die. Moses is being brutally honest and he's saying the consequences of sin are that God returns us to the dust. The consequences for sin is that we physically die. And so this is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.19. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in the New Testament. In Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. God has made an appointment for you and for me concerning death. And it is an appointment that we will not miss. As much as we don't want to meet that appointment, we will not miss it. We will hit that appointment because the wages of sin is death. It's physical death and spiritual death. Now, the believer doesn't suffer phys- uh, spiritual death because we've been born again, made alive spiritually, the one who's accepted Christ. But the believer, just like the unbeliever, is still subject to physical death. And that's the lament, that's the grief that Moses is crying out to God about because he has seen 85 funerals a day for 38 years. And it hurts him. It hurts him. He's going to get to good news in a little bit. But we have to go through the bad news first. He talks about grass here. Grass, like in the morning, when the, when the, when the morning dew comes, the grass is full and rich and green. But by the afternoon, when the, when the sun beats down on it, the afternoon sun, it's withered and faded and Moses is comparing our lives to grass notice he doesn't compare it to a beautiful tree that that lasts hundreds of years like a beautiful live oak or a, or like the the Ben Milam cypress tree in the river on the river walk in in San Antonio where the where the Mexican soldier the Mexican sniper uh, sat in the tree and shot the, the Texas revolutionary Ben Milam that Ben Milam cypress tree has been there for hundreds of years Moses doesn't compare our lives to beautiful cypress trees or beautiful, long-lasting live oak trees. He compares it to grass. Because we are here today and gone tomorrow. So this is the the lament part, the spinach part of Moses' psalm. He's going to get the good news towards the end. Principle number three of this outline. All of this sin... Excuse me, death and suffering is from sin. Verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Now we're like, Moses, really? Why are you talking about wrath and anger? About us. God's wrath and anger towards us. I thought we were 
spared from the wrath of God. I mean, that's what the Scripture says, right? We are spared from the eternal wrath of God. Moses here is talking about believers, and we'll see that in a moment. He's talking about believers who are under the wrath and the fury of God, not in eternity, because, because believers are spared from the wrath of God in, in eternity. He's talking about in time. These believers who have rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. This believing generation. And this word dismayed, by your wrath we have been dismayed. If you have an NASB Bible, you'll see there's a note there that says terrified. Or if you have an NET Bible, it says horrified. It's the Hebrew word bahal. It means terrified or horrified. Dismayed is, is kind of a softened word. Moses is saying, for we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we have been terrified. These are strong words by Moses. And the reason I say this is a believing generation and these are believers that he's talking to is because of Exodus 14.31 which says, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians against the mighty Pharaoh, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That's why I say the Exodus generation was a believing generation. Let's get back to Psalm 90, verse 7. We are spared from the eternal wrath of God. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm repeating myself on that because I want to make crystal clear the believer is not subject to the eternal wrath of God. There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God, which is to say there's nothing we can do or anyone else can do to separate us from our destiny in heaven if we have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And the reason I can say that so dogmatically when it comes to our destiny after we have died is because of Romans 5.9, which says, much more than having now been justified by His blood... We shall be saved from the wrath of God in Him, in Christ. Or how about Romans 8.1? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Moses isn't talking about the eternal wrath of God. He's talking about the wrath of God in time for a believer who is in rebellion against God. This is serious, serious business. And it hurts Moses because Moses has seen what a life of rebellion is as he watches 85 funerals a day for 38 years. Verse 8. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Moses just keeps on going with the spinach. Sin is a big deal. It brings our physical death. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 or Genesis 3.19 from dust we came to dust we will return and during our lifetime there's punishment for sin now we're told by 1 John 1.9 to confess our sins if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so we confess our sins but there's still consequences for our sin and the consequences are different. All sin is sin to God, but different sins have different consequences, right? If you're going 52 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour speed zone, that's one consequence. Sometimes there's no consequence to, that, that you see for that. The person who cheats on their spouse, that's a different consequence. That sin is a different consequence. The point here is 
our sin still brings punishment. I'm not saying that God punishes us every time we sin. I think He doesn't. You, you may or may not get punished for that 52 miles an hour in a 50. I got pulled over in Houston about three weeks ago for doing like 33 miles an hour in a 30. And, and the, the officer was very gracious and he gave me a warning. And I'm like, hey, I appreciate that. My point is, different sins have different consequences. We still receive punishment from God for sin secret sins. What does Moses say here? Secret sins in the light of your presence. So God's not just eternal. He's omniscient. He knows our secret sins. And in your presence, He's omnipresent. The point is, there's no place to hide. There's no place to hide from God's holiness. When it's late at night and you're you're looking at, uh, at that stuff on the internet like, like you shouldn't be looking at, or you're you're cheating on your taxes and you think, oh, no one's going to know. Or you're um, having a little gossip with someone and you think, oh, no one's going to know. God, God knows. He's aware of everything that we do. There are no secret sins with God. And so Moses is warning us. He's warning us to not live independent of God. Let me say it differently. He's mo- warning us to not waste our lives And this same warning about the Exodus generation shows up in the New Testament as well. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5. This is Paul who warns us about the Exodus generation. He warns us to not rebel, to not live in this pattern of sin, unconfessed sin. We're to confess our sins... 1 John 1, 9. And then we need to turn and run from Him. We need God's help to do that. But we're not to be in this pattern of sin, this pattern of rebellion. So here's what Paul says in this warning about the Exodus generation in 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, that's the Exodus generation, nevertheless, with most of the Exodus generation, God was not well pleased. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as an example for us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Stood up to play is a nice way of saying the sexual immorality while Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. Verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. Notice this phrase, as some of them did. It's going to get used over and over here. Verse 8, Nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's a reference to Numbers 16, where God destroyed some of the Israelites with a plague for grumbling against Moses and Aaron. Verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Old Testament, New Testament. Moses, Paul. They're making a point. They're saying, don't waste your life in this pattern of rebellion against God like the Exodus generation did. Now, 
after we trust Christ, we don't become sinless. We don't. But we should sin less. Right? I mean, we're still sinners after we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. But we need to be growing in the Word. We need to be confessing our sin. And we need to turn from it with the power of God who empowers us. Verse 9. of Back to Psalm 90, verse 9. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. So here he goes again with words like fury. God's fury is what Moses is talking about. And sigh is this last breath of a life lived in rebellion against God. Moses is saying life is short. Don't waste it by being under divine punishment. Verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain, contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. So most of the lives, most of the funerals that Moses did in the wilderness, these guys and gals are 70 years old. Now, some of them had really good genes, and so they made it to 80 years old. But this is a general statement that Moses is talking about in terms of the, the lifespan of, age, of, of people at that time. So let's, let's see all of verse 10 together. As for the days of our life that contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor. The Hebrew word there has this meaning of trouble. Yet their pride is but trouble and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. This idea of their pride. It, it, it's a meaning of the best years. Their best years are nothing but trouble, Moses is saying. Trouble and sorrow. And he says, soon they fly away. Soon it's gone and we fly away. In other words, life is short. Now, our culture today doesn't focus on that, right? I mean, our culture today doesn't view life generally as trouble and sorrow. Our culture wants us to view life as pleasure, as money, pleasure, power, sex, leisure, fun, entertainment. You know, all these things. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with any of those things as long as they're, they're enjoyed within God's boundaries. But that's what our culture wants us to focus on. That's what our culture is selling us because they got nothing else to sell. And so that's our golden calf. At least that's what the culture wants us to, to worship as the golden calf. It reminds me of what King Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 1-2. Solomon, who had money coming out of his ears and who chased every sort of pleasure he could come up with. Here's what the great Solomon said. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is van vanity. So Solomon is Mr. Doom and Gloom just like Moses because they're honest. They're honest. A life chasing things independent of God is vanity. It's emptiness. It's wasted. Solomon at the end of his life says, I get it. And at the end of his life, he acknowledged that the only life that is of eternal significance is a life that is lived in submission to God. Principle number four. Fear of God produces a wise life. So now Moses is going to talk uh, lament and also wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 11. 
Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? This part is lament. Moses uses the word fury again, just like back in verse 9. And anger. So Moses is talking about punishment that believers received from, received from God. And the New Testament says the, says the same idea, doesn't it? In Hebrews 10.31, which is written... The book of Hebrews is written to believers, by the way. It says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's not about losing your salvation in eternity because you can't lose your salvation. That is in time. The believer who says, you know what, God, I got this. I'm going to live the way I want to live. The writer of Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is true that God is our friend. Right? John 15, Jesus says we are the friends of God. But that doesn't mean he's our pal. That doesn't mean he's our buddy. Or as I heard one guy say, that doesn't mean he's my homeboy. How does Moses finish this verse? According to the fear that is due you. Awesome reverence and respect. Tinged with fear. That's what Moses is saying changes your life into a life of meaning versus a life that is utterly wasted this is a big deal and that's why Moses just keeps beating on it like a hammer just boom 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 and this is what Proverbs says right Proverbs 9 10 the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom so Moses goes on in verse 12 so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom Moses is saying you need to recognize number our days means recognize that our life is frail and we don't know how many days we have. We might punch our time card tonight and stand before our Maker tonight. Are you ready for that? Or it might be 50 years. But either way, it's soon. It's soon. We will stand before our Maker soon. And the reason I can say tonight or 50 years is soon because in comparison to eternity... For God, there's not much difference. Time is just a drop in the bucket. And so Moses is shaking us by the lapel and he's saying, look, don't waste your life. Recognize, get oriented to the fact that you could be gone any day. I'm not saying that we should be obsessed with death. We shouldn't. We should live a a life of hope. But one eye on this life and one eye on eternity. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Life is short. Don't waste it. Principle number four. God's mercy turns punishment to joy. So now Moses has is, 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 is put down the spinach and he's picked up the nice bowl of ice cream. The bluebell. And he's going to feed us some nice dessert. And we, you know, we're anxious for it after all that lament. So verse 13. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Be sorry. It's this, this idea of mercy. Show your servants mercy. That's another way that we another clue that we know that these are believers. Because Moses calls them servants, the servants of God. So Moses is saying, Show mercy to your servants. 
Verse 14. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. So Moses is continuing his plea for mercy from God. And this phrase in the morning is a sweet, sweet phrase. It's, it's another way of saying a new beginning. When the sun came up this morning, we had a new beginning for today. And it's, it's, when Moses uses the phrase in the morning, he means give us a new beginning, God. You liberate us from sin because your son died for us on the cross. And so Moses recognizes that the only solution for sin is Christ. Christ saves us from eternal condemnation by faith in Him. And then we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, in our daily walk. So Moses is saying, give us a new beginning. Only you, God, can remove the effects of sin. And look at this word joy and glad. It shows up three times here. Joy, glad, glad. This is total contrast from verse 10. Right? Verse 10 where we see trouble and sorrow and all of these words before this. You know, the, the, the first half of this psalm full of anger and fury and wrath and now we have joy and we have gladness. Now let me be clear on this. Joy is not something that we just gin up. I'm going to be joyful. Today I'm going to be joyful. It's not something that we just gin up in ourselves. That's, that's fake. That's phony. And, and you actually see a lot of that in, in Christianity today. And it's, it's real sad to see. It's not something that we just gin up in ourselves. Joy is a response. It's a response. It's a result from trusting God. It's a product of living a life in reliance of God. Joy comes naturally just as a result of that. But it's not something to say, I'm going to be joyous today. And then you walk around with a joy, joy, joy. It's not a fake thing. It's a thing that happens in response to submission to God. Joy is something that results from obedience to God. And it's this deep, meaningful attitude that we have as a result of obeying God. Finally, we get to the last principle, which is only God makes our short lives productive. This is also in the wisdom part of this psalm. Verse 16, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Moses wants God to display his majesty, to display his works to the people. Moses is excited now. Verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. And so Moses wants God to to show his blessing and he asks for it. And he he longs for it. Look at this word work. Moses says this twice. The work of our hands. Confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. My friends, we are made to work. God made us to work. That's why in Genesis 2.15, what does he say to Adam and Eve? This is before the fall in Genesis 3. Tend to my garden. Get to work. We're designed to work. What Moses is saying is, align your work with God's work. And then you have victory. This is the victory of this psalm. You have the victory 
of living a life that is significant, that has eternal value, that has eternal rewards. If your work, whether that is work as a construction worker, building a road, or work as a teacher, or work as a doctor, or work as a mom who cares for the kids at home, your work, or work using your spiritual gift, you should, you should ask God to make your spiritual gift clear to you, and then work under it. Do it in His power, not in ours. But if we align our attitude with God, we align our work with God's work, now there's joy, now there's meaning. Now it's not a life wasted for this guy, for the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, but it's a life rich with meaning, eternal meaning, that yields eternal rewards. This is the victory of this message from Moses. It's a victory of aligning our work with God's work, submitting to God. So in closing today, we've seen that God is our eternal refuge, that He makes our lives fleeting, and that's a result of principle number three, their sin. We die because of sin. Number four, the fear of God produces a wise life. Number five, God's mercy removes punishment and turns it to joy. And number six, only God can make our short lives productive. Life is short. Don't waste it rebelling against God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If there's anyone here without hope, without Christ, without eternal life, we want you to know that God loves you and that God sent His Son to pay for your sins. And in a moment of time, you can stop being the enemy of God and you can become His daughter or His son, His child. And if you haven't done that, we'd urge you to do that just in a moment of time. Jesus is the one who died for your sins and was raised on the third day. And I'm available after the service if anyone wants to talk further about that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time to worship you. Humble us, please, and remind us that we are to submit to you. Remind us that our lives are short. And remind us that the only way to make our lives meaningful is by obedience to you and by serving you. So help us to do that. We ask these things in the name of His Majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.